This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. With COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference getting underway in Glasgow this week, there's a renewed focus on the effort to tackle climate change. But what about communities that are facing the impacts of climate change now? How are these communities, whether in developing countries like Bangladesh or right here in the United States, adapting to the changing climate and other profound environmental shifts? Alize Carrera is a filmmaker and National Geographic explorer, and for the last seven years she's been researching and documenting how communities around the globe are adapting to climate change and other profound changes to the environment. She's also produced and stars in a new series from PBS called Adaptation. Alize, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for being here. I would just start by um, talking about COP26, the uh, UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow this week. And President Biden announced this week that uh, the United States will become a net zero emissions economy by 2050 and do more to help developing countries accelerate a transition to clean energy. So on the one hand, you have a country like the United States saying we're committed to fighting climate change. There are goals in in mind. On the other hand, you've been researching how communities are doing the work on the ground and adapting to climate change as it happens. So how important is adaptation to climate change in the big picture and and how much attention does COP26 and the big power players really focus on on adaptation as part of the the solution to climate change? Yeah, so adaptation um, is really sort of one piece of the puzzle. I think that when we talk about climate change mitigation, i.e. addressing the sources of, of climate change is still um, should be, you know remain the main area of focus. But adaptation is the reality for so many to adapt and how we live with the changes and, and consequences of climate change is a huge part of a reality for many people around the world and will continue to be so even you know if we were to completely shut off all machines tomorrow. And so adaptation is the extent to which we better mitigate and deal with the source of the issue, the the less we will have to adapt and the less we will have to suffer and, and go through this this arc. And that was something that actually Dr. John Holdren, who was formerly one of the chief technology and science advisors to the Obama administration, very eloquently said that, you know, the more we mitigate, the less we, ha- we have to adapt, the less we have to suffer mm-hmm. or people suffer. But adaptation is really a piece of the puzzle. You know, there's so many places around the world where living with changing landscapes and coming up with solutions for how to survive or in some instances maybe even thrive with change is a necessary part of life as we're facing some of these uh, consequences of climate change. Is there a risk that if you have a story about a solution that's really ingenious and you, as you say, you see a community that's figured out how to thrive in some of these difficult circumstances, people might look at that and say, look, we'll be fine. Technology is the answer. Absolutely. And this is something I actually uh, come up against regularly in my work is how do we talk about adaptation in a way that doesn't downplay the gravity of the, the problem or the source of the, the issue here, which is the combustion of fossil fuels and our reliance on fossil fuels. And adaptation, like I said, it's, it's, it's a necessary part of the story. So you can't just ignore it because there are so many places around the world where adapting to changing ecosystems is going to be you know, part of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I, I, I always have to kind of hedge a little bit or say, you know, these are, these are, this is only a piece of the puzzle. Um, adaptation is important. It's a huge part of life, and we can't just knock it away from the conversation. But there's plenty here that needs to be addressed as it relates to changing ecosystems and how people find ways to live within that. And ultimately, adaptation for me is about our relationship to those changes. And it's important to keep having those conversations, even though we also still need to be talking about mitigation. When you talk to uh, communities and and the people who are sort of leading the charge when it comes to figuring out how to deal with some of these challenges, do you get the sense that they're just they're sort of saying, okay, we need to figure this out on our own because we aren't getting help from from governments or 
industry or what have you, or is there like a, a sense that they, they're they saying we need more help? Like what's the sort of takeaway there? Yeah, that's a great question. And it for me, it really depends where I am. For example, in the series that just came out on PBS, I was spent time in Vanuatu. And communities there are definitely saying the rest of the world needs to be doing more because we are experiencing the brunt of this change. You know, we're dealing with rising sea levels and, and um, the consequences of that for coral reef health and so forth. But then there are places in Bangladesh, for example, which is the first episode of the series where um, there's there's quite a robust network of local NGOs that are kind of tied to broader initiatives and, and work across the country in the region, um, you know, helping helping people come up with different solutions and uh, creative ways of, of living with change or, or, you know, giving the support that's needed. So it, it kind of depends. Um, but I will say that the key to the series or sort of the, the, the main point of the series is a lot of that local ingenuity that we see where people are kind of coming up with solutions on their own um, that are these sort of backyard innovations. And um, actually the origin of this whole series came from some work I was doing in Madagascar that looked at how um, farmers were coming up with answers, you know, and I wait creative ways of living with deforestation that were mm-hmm. completely independent of, of what the government was saying they should do or would be given help to do. So yeah, some of it is very homegrown. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, it's not just about climate change. The series also is talking about um, some of these big sort of ecological challenges that have come about for other reasons. For example, one of the episodes is about a fish farm on the Mississippi River, and it's, it was developed to process invasive carp. And in this case, um, it took a Chinese-American businesswoman sort of coming in and saying, this could be a resource for us rather than just a pest fish, right? So we, we can figure out a way to turn this into a moneymaker Tell me a little bit about how that episode came about. Yeah, exactly. The series is not just about adaptation to climate change. It's more about how we live with profound landscape change, uh, whether that oftentimes usually with some kind of human land use, you know, whether that's an extractive industry or deforestation mm-hmm. or introducing an invasive species. Um, that is episode two of the series, two of four. And it was a really uh, I was looking for a domestic story as a part of the show to cover, and I was doing a, just a quick Google search, and I came across a very small local Kentucky newspaper article that said, um, you know, a Chinese-American businesswoman has arrived in western Kentucky, and she's trying to turn the invasive Asian carp problem um, into a resource. And the story stuck with me for a couple of reasons. One, I, I wasn't entirely myself. I didn't know a whole lot about Asian carp, and actually now that I've are officially just being called uh, invasive carp, not not Asian carp, um, and I I hadn't I I found her story quite interesting. She you know moved to this very small town in Western Kentucky to start this plant. So when I emailed her, we started an exchange, and it took me three years to actually get there to film the story. And when I when I arrived, I was really amazed at the perspective and the mentality and kind of the outlook on a changing ecosystem and what that means and how do we shift our own perceptions of an environment, of our own life in relation to that change. And so that, I think it, it's definitely not related to climate change per se, but it really captures, you know, what I often say is that adaptation in some ways is a mindset, right? Mm-hmm. It's about how we how we are relating to the change that's happening around us. And are we going to dig our heels in and say, we need to keep things exactly as they are and kind of armor ourselves um, so that nothing can penetrate this this perfect system that we've maintained? Or do we look to kind of embrace that movement or uh, mobility. And that's something that actually comes across in several of the episodes, uh, Bangladesh first among them that comes to mind because mm-hmm. of the fact that Bangladesh is about living in a constantly shifting landscape. I mean, it's a, it's a delta. It's a, these are generations after generation that has learned to evolve and live alongside uh, shifting lands and waters. 
If you're just joining me, my guest is Elise Carrere. She's a filmmaker and National Geographic explorer, talking about her series on PBS adaptation. Uh, another episode I wanted to, to ask you about is um, uh, talks about a team of scientists in Ladakh, India, and how they're working to create ice reservoirs to provide water in the dry months. It's a really fascinating kind of look at like a kind of simple idea, but a pretty complex execution in terms of the engineering of trying to create these artificial glaciers effectively. So tell me about that, because that, that seems like a pretty long-running project for this team of folks as well. Yeah. So the project is called the Ice Stupa Project, and it's run by a gentleman named Sonam Wangchuk, who's a Ladakhi uh, educator and engineer. And we went there in 2016, I believe it was, to film that story or that episode. And it's a remarkable story because of the fact that it uses, you know, technology, but in a very sort of simple, digestible way that it's technological, but it's not, uh, it's still simple enough and the tools that are necessary for it um, are not, you know, over the top. It doesn't require huge inputs. So the story is that, uh, you know, in, in the critical months of April and May, um, when farmers need water to plant their crops, they often rely in this region of Ladakh in northern India, they rely on glacial runoff uh, from, you know, from the glaciers at the higher elevations. Mm-hmm. And those glaciers are not necessarily freezing throughout the winter months. And so the runoff will continue throughout the winter going down the Indus River Valley. And while you might think, okay, they're surrounded by glaciers and snow, it's actually an arid high mountain desert. So there's not a whole lot of um, freshwater resources and, and the the reliance on them in those spring months is really critical. And now with, with some of these more sporadic freezes and flash floods, because of changing weather patterns, this is really impacting the lives of Ladakhi farmers. So what Sonam and his team, the Ice Stupa Project, have done is they've found a way to kind of capture the meltwater in the winter months when now it's kind of continuously flowing and diverting it and just using gravity alone allows the the water to spray out into a pipe that then freezes over time into an ice pyramid. And then those are at lower elevations. So once the spring comes around, they melt. And then that water gets used for um, irrigating trees and crops. So it's essentially a way of saving water that would have otherwise just disappeared during these months when it's not needed, right? Mm Because they don't need it in December, January, February. They need it in in April and May. So, And it's called an ice stupa because this area, there's predominantly Buddhist area. And so there's plenty of stupas around the landscape and on the landscape. And you'll see from the episode, they're they're kind of these large conical structures and they resemble in many ways some of these Buddhist uh, structures. When did you film the the episode for that? That was in 2016, I believe, or Mm -hmm. 2017, maybe early 2017. Have you been able to check back in and to see how that project's going since? Not personally. I haven't been able to go there, but um, I have stayed in touch with some of the team members that we filmed with there. And it's been an amazing progression in terms of both what they've been able to do with the technology. They've been trying it in the Swiss Alps. They've been trying it in um, the Andes. Uh, the, The applications of this technique are actually quite broad. They can use it to drain glacial lakes so that they don't burst and take out villages along the way. Yeah, I mean, there's there's different uses uh, for this technology. And what's been most amazing is that it's not just about storing the water and, you know, adapting in that sense to the to the situation. But also Sonam and his team are working on creating the Himalayan Institute of of Alternatives Ladakh, Mm -hmm. which is a, a university campus that's meant to help people from this region build skills to live with a changing environment that are really deeply relevant to their lives. And he's just launched something called the I Live Simply movement, which is really how kind of drawing from Mahatma Gandhi's quote that I live simply so that others may simply live. Mm -hmm. The idea that, you know, how can we simplify our lives so that people like 
Sonam and, and the folks of Ladakh or Vanuatu or, you know, Bangladesh aren't dealing with the brunt of, of our, you know, consumption. Given the fact that it's taking a long time to do the research and, and visit these places and then put the series together, I mean, that's like seven years is a long time to be working on a on a television series, right? And in some ways, climate change is accelerating. Some of these other environmental issues can really change pretty profoundly. Do you sometimes look at the episodes you've done and think, I need to go back and kind of redo this? Or are you surprised by how things look now compared to when you were out there and, and filming and talking to those communities? Well, yes, in that um, I think even in seven years, my own thinking has, you know, evolved on some of these topics. And like I said, adaptation is, is such a huge part of the conversation, but it's not the only one. It's certainly not right now while we still have this really critical window to be addressing our carbon drawdown. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think, you know, if I could go back to revisit some of these stories from when I was there, I think I would, you know, maybe build in some more of that addressing the inequality, like from the starting point, how how far off a community in Bangladesh is as compared to a community in the United States dealing with, with climate change. So yeah, these are works in progress. And I think that hopefully over the coming years, I would love to go back to each of the places that we filmed. And, you know, I have lots of wonderful relationships with the community members and um, hear their experiences uh, as they as they continue to grapple with the effects of, of you know, whatever change they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And of course, you live in Miami, you're based in Miami, which has its unique challenges when it comes to the changing climate. How do you think South Florida is is dealing with adaptation to climate change and other environmental challenges? It's a very uh, kind of armor up and block out approach still so far right now. I find that there's not a whole lot of um, acceptance of change or, you know, in very literal sense, the kind of water and Mm -hmm. the realities of that. I would like to see personally, I mean, being that I live in Miami, I would like to see kind of an acknowledgement that there are going to be how do we live with some of these changes rather than just try and keep preventing them from, you know, entering the spaces that we live in as a society? So I think there's still quite a long way to go on that front. I wanted to ask too, I was just reading your bio, you grew up in a house built around a 300-year-old tree. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Ithaca, New York, and um, my mother uh, had bought a house um, on the edge of Cayuga Lake that was an old fishing shack and it had a dirt floor and an outhouse and um, people would, fishermen would peg their day's catch up on the beams of the home and smoke it out. And my mom took off, went sailing around the world and came back uh, with my father and my sister <laughs> and um, they decided to set up set up a home there. And that house uh, became the home that I grew up in, in in Ithaca. But there was a large 300-year-old oak tree in front of the house mm-hmm. uh, that they didn't want to have to cut down. So they actually, as they were building the home and kind of reinforcing it to you know have a family and uh, live longer term, they built the house around the tree. And this tree kind of became a central part of my own life. And sort of poetically, I look at it as, um, you know, we learned to live very closely with nature and constantly dealing with squirrels or carpenter ants or the leaves and worrying about branches falling on our home. It was a very whimsical Swiss Family Robinson, Bernstein Bear-like existence at times. And I, I think that in some way, that proximity to nature and having those experiences as a child of kind of constantly dealing with the outside world very closely and very intimately is connected to a lot of the work I do today, which is really looking at how people live with change. How do we adapt to changes uh, in our immediate landscapes and environments? And it strikes me that, you know, as a Floridian or living in Florida, I think the approach here is kind of just to try and keep the outside out, right? We have, you know, this is the the, the state that invented air conditioning and we, we try and keep our homes pretty cold. We keep the humidity out. So it's it's a totally different approach, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And that's what I, I think that's partly why I love the topic of adaptation in many ways is that, again, it kind of challenges our perspectives on how we live and face different 
challenges that we're confronted with. And again, not to downplay the gravity of the issues elsewhere, but just to kind of say, how can we be a little more flexible or, or lean in or kind of move with or roll with the punches, whatever expression you want to use versus just kind of digging your heels in and saying, this is the way it's going to be. And I'm going to try and maintain the status quo, you know, kind of keep exactly as it is. Well, Alize Correa is a filmmaker, National Geographic Explorer, her series on PBS about how communities around the globe are adapting to climate change and other profound environmental changes called adaptation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Still to come, the pandemic has brought about widespread changes to the economy and healthcare. I'll talk to Florida Blue CEO Pat Garrity about what that means for the health insurance industry and for consumers. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. The pandemic wrought havoc on the healthcare system and the economy, with the politicisation of vaccines adding an extra level of chaos. So what does that all mean for the business of health insurance? With the open enrolment getting underway this week for people shopping for insurance on the Affordable Care Act marketplace, I spoke with Florida Blue's Pat Garrity about the impact of the pandemic on the health insurance industry, where people are getting health insurance, vaccine mandates and more. Well, Pat Garrity is the president and CEO of Florida Blue and Guidewell. Pat, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Happy to be with you. I want to ask you about COVID and just tell me about your perspective now on the impact of the pandemic on the business of healthcare. For example, does the prospect of the uh, you know lingering impacts of COVID on the population without necessarily the kind of federal or state stimulus we might have seen over the last one and a half to two years, does that change the equation of healthcare and health insurance? Well, COVID obviously has been very complex for all of us uh, to manage. Uh, Last year, when COVID first took off, you found that the discretionary services in healthcare weren't being administered at all, and COVID was really the only thing the system was dealing with uh, for the most part last year. And because of that, the spending in healthcare was down quite a bit. Um, That was a one-year phenomenon. This year, when Delta variant took off, the health systems were much more prepared for isolating COVID, dealing with it, and also dealing with their normal volume of patients. Therefore, uh, healthcare expense this year is off the chart. Um, Very, very high expense has come through the system, uh, and health plans and others, uh, employers, have all had to deal with, with that. So as we look forward, we have a couple of things that are not yet clear. What will be the effect of long-term COVID and what effect will that have on on people who are suffering from it? And then some of the effects of people who didn't get uh, the testing or discretionary services last year that might have detected a cancer or some other disease. We're really just seeing now Uh, some of the effect of that. And it really will probably take us a good another year as a system to fully understand uh, what the full impact of COVID is. But it was absolutely significant for all parties. Let me just go back to um, your comment just now about the fact that healthcare systems were were prepared for the surge, because we did also see, you know, hospitals pleading with people to you know, get vaccinated, try not to put so much strain on the hospital system. So was that the fact that the population maybe wasn't prepared, even if the healthcare system was? You know, I, I think it was a matter of timing. And so when everybody is looking for services all at once, it can overwhelm the system. 
Um, certainly, as the, the rollout of the vaccines have taken place, it's really helped dramatically uh, change the equation uh, with COVID-19. We have so many more folks that get milder reactions because of vaccination. So uh, the vaccine rollout has been absolutely critical uh, to managing COVID-19 uh, across our state and certainly across the country. Mm-hmm. Let me ask then about the economy and COVID. A lot of people in the last 18 months have changed jobs or left the workforce. And according to the US Bureau of Labor Statistics, 4.3 million Americans, that's nearly 3% of the workforce, quit their jobs in August. How is the great resignation then affecting the health insurance industry? Yeah, so us as an employer, Florida Blue, um, we've been pretty steady. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't seen major dislocation uh, happening among our workforce although we have seen some of the hiring has been a little bit more uh, challenging at this point, but we didn't have major fallout from our ranks, and it's for a variety of reasons. We, as a company, Florida Blue has paid a living wage now for a number of years. We have gender pay equity in our organization, and so lots of reasons that people may have been disgruntled with other employers didn't necessarily apply in our space to the extent others have seen it. So our workforce has been relatively stable, but we know that some of the clinical frontline uh, uh, services of you know, provider offices and hospitals mm-hmm. have been greatly challenged by people who have really been burned out because of the intensity of the work they've had to do over these last eight, 18 months. So that's Florida Blue specifically, but what about uh, if you think about how people are seeking health care? Like if you change employers, that can bring about some changes in how you get health care and how you get health insurance, right? So for example, are you seeing more people seek out coverage under the Affordable Care Act? Have you noticed like a big shift in people switching health insurance plans and what kind of impact does that have for Florida Blue? Yeah, no question that we saw um, people changing uh, over to, for a large part, moving from, say, small employers to ACA type of coverage. So Mm -hmm. you had a combination of things going on there. One was that with the change of administration, the enrollment period for the ACA was extended so that it was almost throughout the entire year. We had a special enrollment period for the ACA that went all the way to the middle of August, and then we had the new enrollment period for the ACA that starts on Monday. So there was a very short period of time where you couldn't enroll in the ACA. So we saw a growing enrollment in the ACA, and to a large extent, it acted like a safety net. Mm-hmm. What about Florida Blue's rates then? They are going to go up by just almost 10% next year. Tell me about why that's happening. Well, uh, it really depends on your product and your experience. Uh, In the ACA, the numbers are almost the same as they were last year, so Mm -hmm. not a lot of change in ACA pricing. Uh, Pricing that isn't in uh, a small insured market like the ACA is really reflective of the experience. So if we have high claim experience, it's going to be reflected in next year's price. And as I said, this year we had the combination of COVID expenses and Uh, the return of all of the pent-up demand in the regular health services. So experience was running quite high because of that. And obviously other insurance companies will also, you'll see a bump in in rates there. So is this like, is this kind of a one-year thing? Uh, Would you see maybe a a flattening out a little bit the following year? Um, 
you know, I'd like to th- expect that it'll flatten out, and we'll see. This is one of those things that you have to see what the experience is because we've just come through a hopefully once-in-a-lifetime event. Mm-hmm. And if it's a once-in-a-lifetime event, then the uh, premiums will reflect that. Back to the economy again. We're also – the economy is picking up. We are seeing people get back to work if maybe they were furloughed for a bit or you know seeking new jobs. Um, just talk a little bit in broad terms, if you could, about the impact that has on people seeking out health care and what that means for the health insurance industry. Yeah, so obviously it's good for everyone uh, that we get people back to work and be in a full employment mode, not just from the fact that they have work, but it's also uh, it adds to people's well-being, it adds to people's sense of security. All of these things impact your health. Um, if one has a job and has financial security, that leads to better health. One of the things we're clearly seeing coming out of the pandemic is a much heightened uh, dependence on behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And so we last year, Florida Blue, acquired a behavioral health company, New Directions, with the understanding that there was going to be greater needs in the behavioral health space, and the combination and integration of behavioral and physical health would be important for us to move down the line and make sure that we're doing the best possible job we can do there to take care of our members. We're almost two years into the pandemic. We are seeing people take to GoFundMe in some cases to get their COVID-19 hospital bills paid for. What's Florida Blue telling customers about what they'll have to pay for for COVID-19 coverage? Yeah, so we absolutely took care of the COVID-19 patient. We took care of their vaccination. We took care of their services, and we were right up front about taking care of our members, and that was a unilateral move on the part of our company. Last year, uh, over $200 million that we put forward to take care of the community uh, to make sure that their services related to COVID-19 were taken care of. That whole dynamic shifts when you get vaccination in play. Mm -hmm. So what we wanted was to get the community vaccinated because then the only those who chose not to be vaccinated are the ones that are really the ones ending up in the hospital. It's a very small percentage of vaccinated people that are in the hospitals. And so the, those folks really are the ones that we're focused on is trying to educate, trying to make sure they understand their ability to access a vaccine, why they should access a vaccine, and its implications for the broader community. Uh, And so that's been our focus this year. So if you're not vaccinated and you end up in hospital or you end up with a big medical bill because of COVID-19, you're on the hook for that? Well, if you're insured by us, you don't end up with a big medical bill. You end up with your deductible and Mm -hmm. coinsurance. If you're not insured, you could end up with a big bill. What about those folks, and you you refer to this, I mean, there are breakthrough cases, right? There are people who've been vaccinated. I mean, just anecdotally, I know of a couple of people who have uh, you know, been vaccinated, ended up in hospital, and, you know, any kind of hospital stay is going to be expensive, right? So what, what happens to those folks? Yeah, any kind of hospital stay can be expensive, but that's why you get insurance. Hmm. Our plans have a deductible and a coinsurance, and that's the limit to your expenses. So whether or not you're running up $10,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars of expenses, once you've hit your maximum, uh, you don't have further exposure. So if you're covered by one of our plans, uh, you have strong financial protection against whatever um, you're going to face. 
just thinking about vaccines too, I mean, the, the vaccine mandates, vaccines in themselves have become a hyper-political thing, and I guess that's tricky for companies of any size to deal with. What's Florida Blue's approach been? Have you required employees to get vaccinated? So we've been very, very clear about our position on the vaccine, and we've been clear about our position on COVID-19 from the start. Mm -hmm. My number one priority was to keep our people safe so that we could do the best job we could for our members. So right away, we moved everyone to home. We had less than 10% of our company that was actually in the, in the workplace during COVID-19. When vaccines came around, we encouraged vaccination. Uh, we strongly encouraged vaccination. We've made it so that if you wanted to come on our campus, you had to be vaccinated to be on campus. So we had people who are obviously working remotely who weren't necessarily vaccinated. However, now we are a federal contractor and the federal contractor rule requires us to get our people vaccinated. Uh, the good news is all of the education and outreach and all the programs we've done so far had led to more than 80% of our people were already vaccinated. So now the education and the focus is on the balance of folks who need to be vaccinated in order for us to maintain our position in the federal uh, contractor. Have you had a lot of pushback? I mean, the 20% doesn't sound too much, but I mean, what are, what are those folks telling you about why they don't want to get a shot? Yeah, so out of the 20%, you've got people that fall into different camps. So far, we've had three or 400 people that have opted for the religious exemption mm -hmm. that is allowed for under the federal mandate. We've had a few people who have a medical reason why they're opting out. And then other folks, you know, it was, it, they've had a variety of reasons that range from, uh, you know, they had concerns about long-term effect or they didn't understand all of the particular issues. We've set up seminars, education, outreach. We've done uh, vaccine clinics at our work sites. We've really tried to give the full range of ways for people uh, to get covered and to get vaccinated, uh, you know, before the, the timeline runs out on the federal mandate. And we see people that are now, with that nudge, are moving forward to get vaccinated. And we're hopeful uh, that most of, if not all of our folks, will avail themselves of one of the three paths, get vaccinated or have one of the two exemptions. And, and so, you know, Florida Blue... Obviously, you're a big company. You've got a lot of resources. You've taken it sounds like a everything and the kitchen sink approach to it. But for other employers, what would your advice be if they're sort of struggling with what to do? Yeah. So for those employers uh, that are out there worrying about this, uh, on our websites we have educational pieces about the vaccines. Um, Dr. Kelly Tice, who is uh, a uh, pup, was a public health doctor who joined our organization two years ago, has done a lot of instructional. Uh, videos around uh, what to consider when you're uh, looking at vaccination. Uh, so we would encourage people uh, to look at those, to direct folks to look at those. Also, there are lots of local resources uh, because people are comfortable when they're getting their advice from people they know and trust. And so we would direct folks to uh, the various medical societies, their primary care physicians, and really uh, take this seriously. Um, because it is a personal decision, I understand that, um, but we want people to be getting that best advice, not just from a random internet source, but from somebody who has credibility, who's done the research, who understands the issue, and cares about their well-being.
The President has outlined plans to expand health programs, part of his domestic spending bill. That, that is part of his domestic spending bill. What impact do you think that's going to have on your business and the health insurance industry in general? Well, one of the things that came out of the American Rescue Plan originally was a set of subsidies for people to make their Affordable Care Act coverage more affordable. Um, under the current proposal, that would get extended at least through the end of 2025. So that will uh, help keep costs down for individuals uh, signing up for coverage. So that, I think, is a positive thing. We as a company believe that people should be covered um, because unlike a lot of other services in healthcare, if you are uncovered, you can still go to an emergency room. You're probably going to be in a more acute state than if you've been getting care right along. And that acute coverage or service that you receive that hospital has to get that payment from somewhere. They don't just write it off. They shift the expense to all of the people who are covered by commercial insurance. So everybody's paying for this one way or the other. I believe they ought to pay for it on the front end and cover everyone uh, in our country, and we ought to be debating how to get that done, not should we get that done. So do you think that this plan that the president's rolled out, is that going to lead to more people seeking coverage under I think the ACA? It, I think it will help, and I think anything that helps to get more people covered is a good thing uh, for the system, and it's the right direction. Let me ask Pat Garrity about, I guess, how COVID or how the pandemic has had an impact on just the way you do business in general. I mean, there are some things that you've rolled out. You've got a sort of a hyper-local, I think you're calling it, that, that approach to it. Yes. There's sort of... Uh, maybe a move towards getting everything in one place. Was that going to come about regardless of the pandemic, or has that sort of helped spur some of those innovations? You know, we were looking towards being more what we call hyper-local even before the pandemic, but it certainly made a lot of sense um, because of the pandemic. And I should be clear, we don't look at healthcare as a political issue. It gets politicized. I'm not naive enough to think it doesn't. But we were willing to work with anybody who sees health care as something that should be delivered to everyone, and everyone ought to have access, and we ought to have high-quality health care. I'll work with anybody who takes that point of view, whatever side of the political aisle they come from. Mm -hmm. So when we go into local communities, we want to make sure that we're deep in that community. We're thinking about things like early childhood education, transportation, food security, nutrition, all the things that lead to well-being in the first place because the system could be much more cost-effective if we're creating an environment in which people can be healthy in the first place and only need services when they need them. And when you get to services, they ought to be delivered in the right setting. Sometimes the right setting is at home, with an outreach from a clinician who actually comes to your home. And we've got services that actually do chronic care in the home setting because it's more cost-effective and it's actually better for the patient. Pat Garrity, President and CEO of Florida Blue and Guidewell, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come, Beacon College's TV show, A World of Difference, seeks to highlight learning differences, celebrating success stories and letting students and parents of students with learning differences or disabilities know they're not alone. We're back with more after the break. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. 
Beacon College's TV show A World of Difference highlights learning differences and celebrates success stories. The premiere episode for this season featured an interview with Shark Tank investor Damon John, who has dyslexia. The show's host and creator is Beacon College Director of Public Affairs, Daryl Owens. Well, Daryl Owens is the Director of Communications at Beacon College. He's also the host and creator of a new show the college launched in August 2020. The show is called A World of Difference. Uh, Daryl, good to have you back. Thank you, Matthew. It's good to be back. So tell me a little bit about the genesis of the show. You launched this at a pretty challenging time, let's say, for everyone, right in the middle of the pandemic, and I'm sure the planning had been underway for a long time. How, how did that show come about, and what, what are you trying to achieve with it? Well, you're exactly right, Matthew. It wasn't an optimum time to launch a television show, but um, Beacon College uh, has been around for, at that point, about 31 years, and we've accumulated a lot of knowledge on how to support uh families that are rearing kids with learning differences. And Mm -hmm. we wanted to figure out a good way to export our uh, knowledge to the public um, in mass. And we figured because everybody watches television, uh, a TV show would be a great medium to do that. So uh, we conducted a a survey in uh, April of 2020 uh, just to confirm our suspicion that people were hungry for this kind of uh, support and expert advice. And to a man almost, probably 99% of the people who responded to the survey said, yes, we would love a TV show like this. So Mm -hmm. we put together the idea of a monthly program, a half hour or so show that would be aspirational and inspirational and provide actionable strategies for families who were dealing with particular issues surrounding ADHD, dyslexia, autism, and other specific learning uh, disabilities. So Mm -hmm. we uh, put together a show that would have three segments. One would be uh, a family matters segment, which would profile a family who was dealing with some kind of issue. Uh, Ask the experts segment, which would, um, as the name suggests, have a panel of experts uh, deal with a particular issue and give the strategies to families. And it would also include my favorite segment on the show, which is called Difference Makers, which is a profile of someone who is famous and successful who has a learning difference or someone who is an ally for people who are living with these issues. Mm -hmm. So with all that, we launched a show in August of 2020. Our first season, we did 11 episodes. Uh, We uh, touched on various issues such as ADHD, dyslexia, and also looking at how people who are living with learning differences can better be included in such areas as STEM, science, technology, um, engineering, and mathematics uh, fields. And one of our other big emphasis is, is trying to explain to the workforce that these people have value that they should be a part of the workforce, that a diverse workforce includes a neurodiverse workforce as well. Mm -hmm. Do you have some personal experience with people in your family who have learning differences? Yeah, absolutely I do. I've been walking and living this journey myself. Uh, My son is someone who is living with learning differences. So um, I was uh, naturally attracted to the topic uh, because as a parent, I've been dealing with these issues myself. And then as a communications director at Beacon College, I have, of course, been dealing with a whole population of students who are dealing with these issues. So Mm 
it definitely hit home personally with me as well. And it sounds like the part of the show that you enjoy taping most is finding and highlighting the stories of those people who've overcome those differences or at least figured out a way to to work through them. Tell me about some of the highlights so far for you. Yeah, absolutely. Our Family Matters segments are particularly poignant to me because, as I said, in the research we did, the survey, we actually went into a lot of Facebook groups. There were a lot of Facebook groups out there for mm-hmm. various learning disabilities, parents uh, who are you know, just at their wits' end trying to figure out how to support their child and to put them on better footing for success in the uh, the world at large. And so these Family Matters segments, when you go and you talk to a family who is dealing with an issue, um, for instance, the, the SAP family who we profiled um, in season one, their son is uh, autistic. And they told the story of the challenges he faced, the triumphs and the tribulations. And that's something we want to uh, put forth here. It's not all gloom and doom, that mm-hmm. there are some triumphs, and whether they're, they're small um, steps that they make on the developmental ladder, it's still a triumph for this particular family. So we, we certainly enjoy putting those stories out there so that people, number one, can see that they're not alone in this journey, and that also... Uh, through watching someone else and hearing how they deal with certain situations, they may be able to put that forth in their life and make their life a little easier and more successful for their child. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the audience so far? We have gotten some interesting feedback. Last week, I received a Facebook message from someone who watches the show um, via our social media uh, Facebook watch channel in Bangladesh. Hmm. And this uh, gentleman He loved the program. He loved how the United States seems to be dealing with learning differences. Mm -hmm. But there is nothing like that in his country. And that broke his heart as he told me the story of his own son who he said he'd tried almost everything. I mean, he moved this kid from school to school to school trying to find him the support he needed and that he just wasn't having any luck. This young man was... um, 10, 11 years old and still reading on a second grade reading level because he just couldn't get the support. So what we find, the show is called A World of Difference, but um, messages like that help us to be reminded that it really is, when it comes to learning differences, it's a global thing. It doesn't stop at the United States border. If you're just joining me, my guest is Daryl Owens. He is the communications director for Beacon College and the creator of the television show, It's called A World of Difference. Thinking about how countries approach this or how institutions approach learning differences, where does the United States sit on the scale? Like, uh, are we a leader in terms of accepting those differences and figuring out how to work through them and integrating people with learning differences into society or... Do we have a ways to go? Are there countries, other countries or other education systems to emulate? Well, I won't say that I'm an expert in that area, but I, I know the United States certainly falls in the top half. We're not the best, perhaps. I think where we fail still in the United States is that learning differences are still seen as a stigma. I've had some students at uh, Beacon College, in fact, um, 
talk to me about how they don't necessarily want to disclose when they graduate that they attended Beacon College because mm. it is a college for students who learn differently uh, because they think that this is going to be a scarlet letter on their ability to uh, advance in the global marketplace. And that's sad that you have people who are living with these learning differences who want to keep them hidden, who want to keep it shrouded because they think other people are going to look down on them. Hmm. And that's I think that's kind of at the, the mission of our show as well. It's trying to remove that stigma. It's trying to show uh, people that just because you have a learning difference, it doesn't mean that you're uh, not intelligent because there is no uh, equality between learning differences and retardation, for instance. And we're also trying to show by featuring uh, people like um, Shark Tank star Damon John, uh, who everybody has seen on TV and everybody knows is particularly uh, uh, well-off and wealthy and, say, a successful businessman, but he has dyslexia. Mm-hmm. So you can be successful, you can be famous, you can be whatever you want with a learning difference, and there's no need to hide behind a shield because of that. Are you seeing any kind of shift in attitude? I mean, when you think about other colleges, are colleges starting to incorporate some different methods to the way they teach to uh, accommodate students who, who learn differently? Uh, because there's obviously a, a spectrum of of differences, right? I mean, you, you may be able to get by, you may be okay at a at a college where they're not necessarily catering to your needs, but if other institutions could sort of make a, a small step and come your way a wee bit as a student, that would help, right? Yeah, I think you're exactly right there, Matthew. And certainly uh, most colleges are trying to support people who learn differently. Um, frankly, there are is just been an increase in the number of people with learning differences who are going to college over the past decades or so. So Mm -hmm. there are more on campus, uh, so they do have to uh, uh, attend to them. But uh, the, the issue that mainstream colleges face is that they may provide services for people who have learning differences and learning disabilities, but they don't integrate them into the curriculum. You know, they'll have an Office of Disability Services, and what that requires someone who has a learning difference to do is to go to that office and say, hey, I need help. Can you get me these accommodations? But going circling back to what I was talking about earlier, if that particular student sees his learning difference as a scarlet letter, he doesn't want to do that because Mm -hmm. it identifies him as such. Hey, this guy's got a learning disability, and whether it's true or not, he thinks that the entire campus is now looking at him. And so a lot of people will attend a mainstream college and not use the services that are provided there and flunk out. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, that's how a number of students um, end up at Beacon College. They try the mainstream route, and even though there may be support there, they don't access it. They don't do well, and then they come to uh, Beacon where these types of services are baked into everything we do. Mm-hmm. Just thinking back to the season opener, your interview with Damon John, you know, somebody like that with dyslexia, what does that tell you about that particular learning difference? Do you feel like uh, maybe people are more willing to be open about it or it's maybe more common than people might assume? Well, it is definitely uh, very common uh, among entrepreneurs, and that was a point that uh, Damon John made in, in our interview. Is that, Isn't that um, interesting? It really is. If you, if you 
um, if you watch Shark Tank, um, Damon is not the only dyslexic on that show. Um, mm. And among entrepreneurs, uh, 30% of them, I think, was the, the figure are dyslexic. So it, it shows that in, in the way that he envisions it is that it's kind of a superpower. It mm. really uh, it helps them to be creative and innovative and visionary in a way that um, neurotypical people um, such as ourselves uh, may not be. So when you start seeing people like a Damon John, it helps to change the way people think about uh, learning differences. And when you come back to the, the families you're trying to reach and offer some kind of support, or at least like a sense that you know you're not alone and there are people who've they, they have a learning disability they're still successful is that message that's getting through like you're getting kind of people saying well that's something that didn't occur to me or you know, it's reassuring to to know that success is it's achievable it's attainable and you know as you say the your guest damon john said it's kind of like a superpower in some ways well absolutely um there is nothing like being um reassure that the fraternity or sorority that you you happen to be in as a parent isn't a uh, one-person club in that at the end of the journey that um, there can be a measure of success and you know that that's the thing that you have to um, to define for yourself I mean at, at Beacon College success in our opinion, is defined by the graduate because, you know, some people success may be becoming, um, you know, director or vice president or CEO of a company. Mm. But for someone else, being a school teacher or even being a clerk at a store, while some people may look down on that for someone who at age three couldn't speak or maybe even older, could not speak because of autism. To become a clerk, to be able to be social, to be able to interact with the public, that's a major success. So mm-hmm. that's what we hope to uh, to provide to parents, that there can be success at the end of what often is a very long journey of dealing with testing, of trying to be an advocate for your child to get an individual education plan that meets the accommodations that your kids need. Sometimes it's a big fight Hmm. to get what your child needs to be a successful student. So at the end of that journey, yes, there can be a ray of light for a lot of parents. Daryl Owens is the host and creator of A World of Difference. It's a show about learning differences uh, produced by Beacon College. He's also the communications director at Beacon College. Thanks so much for coming in and sharing some some of the story about the TV show and, and your work. Thank you for having me, Matthew. I appreciate it. Beacon College's A World of Difference is Tuesday nights at 9.30 p.m. on Orlando Super Channel, WACX-TV. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from LaToya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen back to archived shows on wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.